All right, I'm always excited to get started here, so I know, you know, we got to try to get everybody back on schedule here. We'll do our best to do that. Um, so we're going to go ahead and get started with the crude tanker panel. I'm Chris Weatherby. Um, my pleasure to be joined here by a really esteemed panel. To my right, we have Lois Brocky, who's the CEO of International Seaways. We heard from Lois at lunch, so I'm sure everybody knows you. Uh, Ted Patron, Vice Chairman Navios, next. We have Bob Burke, partner and CEO of Ridgeberry Tankers. And then we have Harris from, uh, from Shaco's sitting in for Nicholas today. So thanks very much for, <laughs> for joining us. Um, so let's kick off. So, so I wanted to talk a little bit, just sort of big picture about the market. So I think one of the themes of today has been how good the tanker market has been. So, you know, I guess maybe I'll, I'll start with Lois because you're right to my right here. You know, maybe if you could help us characterize the strength of the market today and, and how you feel about this cycle relative to previous ones you've seen in your career. Okay. Open-ended question to start. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you, you kick it off and, and just say, you know, uh, you know, at International Seaways, we have a diversified tanker fleet. So we have both uh, product carriers, mid-sized crude, and then the big ships. And, you know, what's uh, differentiated at this moment than really had happened all the way through 2022, except for the fourth quarter, is that the VLCCs have kind of kicked into gear responding to uh, the, the opening of China and demand increasing ton miles. The middle part of the, of the crude fleet has just uh, performed very strongly. In particular, you know, you're pulling a lot of crude into the EU from the Western Hemisphere. That's really an Aframax, Suez Max uh, space, and, and they're shining. And then the product carriers really should not be last on that list because the product carriers have been um, really, you know, uh, for over a year just performing very strong uh, across the board and in particular at the moment, you know, bringing uh, product into to the EU, especially as Russia has been backed out of bringing their uh, refined product imports into the EU. So overall, it's, it's you know, uh, been a very healthy market and we really look for that to continue. Forgot the second question. Uh, no, I think I th that'll do it. Uh, yeah, and I think maybe I'll ask Ted to sort of build on that. When you think about this in the context of historical cycles, maybe how do you think about this one relative to what we've seen before? Uh, well, I think the strength of this is not only volume, but everybody's talking ton miles, right? And the uh, the uh, IEA saying another two million barrels by the end of the year of consumption. You know, you look at GDP, world GDP, it's going up around 3% for the next two years. There's an 85% correlation between that and the increasing in oil. Um, and on top of that, you have a ton mile issue because of the war. So everything's flashing green. Um, I, I, you know, plus you have CII coming into effect. And Lois talked about it very well at lunch. Um, I think we're saved from ourselves because we have uh, almost a zero order book. Um, you're starting to see a lot of interest from the majors, the oil majors and the traders for a long-term period because of the order book, because of inflation, which is something that happened in the 80s. Maybe you guys weren't around in the 80s when it happened, but um, I was it, here. It was, it was very, um, I, you know, everything's flashing green here. Um, and this happened in, you know, what, 15 years ago when it was not supposed to happen again, but here we are. Um, it's a cyclical market, but um, this one has some legs. Okay. Um, Bob, there's three things that I think about in the context of this market. I guess there's the there's there's Russia, there is China, and then I think the U.S. from an economic standpoint. So if I'm thinking about demand, 
I don't need you to necessarily answer all three of those, but maybe pick one or two that you think, you know, and, and how unique they are and what they mean to the strength and duration of this cycle. Yeah, um, to reiterate what Ted said, I've been doing this since the 80s also, and I've never seen it so strong. Um, but more importantly, sort of the, uh, the parameters that box in a good market have never all been there at the same time. I, I think, you know, fundamentally the lack of orders has nothing to do with capital Discipline, I don't think there's any discipline in a basically commodity-driven market. It's just not in our own best interest to order expensive ships with an uncertain propulsion system. It doesn't make any sense at all. Um, but you asked about de uh, demand from Russia and what it's done to the trade. Um, I, I think it's widely accepted if, we, if peace breaks out tomorrow, the trade, I mean, the, the dependence upon Russian oil will not go back to where it was. But I do think that the trade will expand more between, or go back somewhat to what it was between Russia and, and Europe. I mean, it's not a pipeline, so it's not complete dependency, but those trade rates will probably rationalize. Uh, with China opening up, it's an increase in demand of a million odd barrels a year, and uh, most of that, or a lot of that now, will be coming from the U.S. Gulf. It just needs to make the most sense for them. Uh, and U.S. Gulf and shale, I think um, the increase in shale production is not going to be what it has been. You know, I, I think the most optimistic projections are a little bit over half a million barrels a year going forward. And just structurally, you can't support much more of that. A lot of that is based upon, you know, the service providers in the sales sec shell sector. They're just not there. Got it. Um, Harris, maybe also if you could give us maybe some perspective on the market from a China standpoint. Are, any thoughts there in terms of, you know, how quickly demand has come back or is going to come back from China? So obviously coming through Lunar New Year, which was extended this year, how are we seeing developments kind of real time? Sure. Uh, well, it's interesting because uh, up until a couple of months ago, we did know the market didn't really need China uh, to, uh, to open up in order to, be, to have this firmness, uh, this solidity that we're seeing over the last uh, you know, few months or uh, uh, you know, since the war erupted in, in the Ukraine. Uh, the, uh, the opening up of uh, China is obviously an added bonus in this uh, context in the sense that, you know, supply, a vessel supply is uh, at, at the lowest ever it has been. Uh, global oil demand, except China, has uh, recovered and uh, has probably exceeded the pre-COVID level. So on top of that, uh, suddenly, uh, uh, finally, uh, China opened up. Uh, it seems, you know, the Chinese have proved that, that they can they can, uh, you know, come back, uh, uh, you know, very quickly. Uh, don't forget, they've been, uh, you know, locked up for like three years. Mm -hmm. uh, so pent up demand has really uh, built up, and uh, and uh, we're seeing this being translated to additional barrels. I mean, market commentators expect uh, Chinese demand to grow anywhere between, you know, 800,000 to a million uh, barrels per day. Uh, eventually, this will be filtered into seaborne trade. We will see uh, additional. Um, or, or increased demand for seaborne uh, transportation, especially from, uh, uh, not especially, but uh, additionally from, you know, faraway places from uh, the U.S. as uh, in the pre-COVID uh, 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 period. Uh, or, and uh, even if China uh, continues, uh, not so much the, to, to the extent that we have seen India, but uh, even if China starts uh, or maintains uh, the relationship with uh, with Russia and uh, and uh, continues or starts uh, to to import more oil from Russia, that's still uh, a kind of benefit for the rest of us in the sense that they will absorb uh, perhaps uh, some of the older tonnage that they, they they will not be uh, kind of permitted or allowed to trade in what I call the Western trades. So all of that will migrate 
to uh, uh, to you know the shadow fleet that we, we, okay. we keep talking about. So it will take additional supply out of our market, uh, which is only a positive. Got it. So uh, uh, whichever way you look at it, the open up of of, of China could only be translated as a huge positive for uh, for tankers going forward. Got it. Um, Ted, maybe I'd, I'd ask you to opine a little bit on the U.S.'s role here. So over the course of the last couple of weeks, I think the concern amongst the investment community of we're going, it went from sort of a soft landing to no landing back to maybe a hard landing for the U.S. economy and how you might think about that in the context of oil demand in the coming couple of quarters or year or so. I'd be so we have an issue with the economy, and, and we're probably going to have a. My opinion is maybe a very soft recession. Um, I think that's worse for the containers because you know, for them, it's the the OECD Western consumers, right, the finished products. But we're more we're more moving our stuff out to the out to the east from the west. All the oil's been discovered in the Atlantic. All the new demands in the Pacific. I actually think, contrary to what people say, that if there's a slight recession. Um, we've been um, exporting records amount of product, records amount of v uh, crude over the last month. I think that's, people don't expect that continue. That could continue should we go into a, a, a slow recession. I, I, I'm, you know, my, I, my job at Navius is to poke holes into, you know, when everybody says, everybody in the room said everything's good, right? What we say is, you know, if everybody's thinking the same in the room, nobody's thinking. So uh, it's hard for me to poke holes into this uh, market not staying high for the next year or two. Okay. Lois, maybe taking a thought about different sized vessels within tankers, within crude specifically. So China, I think the perception is that drives a VLCC trade clearly. I think the disruption with Russia maybe was less impactful from a VLCC perspective. So as you're thinking about it, international seaways, how are you thinking about relative strength of vessels and, and maybe where you could see the lead coming from over the course of the next several months or quarters? Yeah, so, you know, the lead has come from, you know, r really the smallest ships right up through uh, now that these are, are really on board and are driving things. But, you know, your your real strength has been, um, you know, like if you take LR1s and, you know, whether you're trading dirty as a Panamax or as a clean vessel, there has been a real pull on that part of the fleet, uh, you know, on the crude side and, and the dirty product side in the, in the sense that the U.S. backed over 600,000 barrels a day of Russian heavy vacuum gas oil feedstock out of our economy early on and the LR1s and then the next step up the uh, LR2s and the Affirmaxes have been particularly uh, pulled upon. If you're going to load uh, crude in the Baltic, it's largely going to be on either an Afra or a Suez. And if you're going to, you know, bring product from India, it's, you know, ideally on an LR2 or a clean Afro. So you just see the whole middle part of the fleet having really uh, ramped up in, in usage and demand. So it's just been very strong. And, you know, I would look for that to continue. You know, uh, product exports out of the U.S. Gulf, which have been very strong, and we look for that to continue. That's really an MR market. And then... You know, as, as China pulls and, and starts to come alive again from a demand perspective, uh, that that really puts uh, the V's into play as well. Okay, got it. 
I want to take a second and talk a little bit about the supply side. So maybe, Bob, one for you, if you could give us your perspective and what you're thinking about sort of average fleet age maybe first, and then we can kind of go into the order book from there. Sure. Um, the average fleet age is 12.3 years, which seems to be a concern. Um, the average airplane in the country is 14 years old. Everyone feel safe in the plane that last time they took it? Did anyone ask when it was built? P probably not. Uh, the average car in the country is 12 and a half years old. Probably so that means half the people in this room have a car 12 and a half years or more somewhere in their garage. The average truck is 13 years old, um, light truck 16 and a half. That's the average age. The average rail car is 20 years old. The average locomotive is 27. CSX, who is pretty much the gold standard, the average age is 22. So when we look around where the market is and what has to give, they say there's no order book, but there's an installed asset base on the water today. And we talk about ESG constantly. We talk about 2030, 2050. But sometimes we should think about what we can do tomorrow. Not tomorrow as in next year, but like in March 21st, 20, 2023. If the assets lasted 25 years, and there's not a reason on this good earth that they can't last if we're uh, allowed to by the charters, that there's plenty of supply. You know, the unfortunate thing is the people who say ships have to be scrapped at 20 have probably never been on a ship before. They ever, maybe they've even seen one. You know, I brought a banker out to Singapore to see an 18-year-old ship, 18-year-old V, and I said, they're going to scrap this thing in two years and melt down 44,000 tons of steel. And that has an ESG impact. Um, you know, the other thing to think about is if we're all worried about scrapping, you know, by my math, if ships last 25% longer, well, there's 25% less scrapping, and there's 25% less of an issue there. So I think we've all been held captive, you know, by the OPA 90 regulations of 40 years ago or 30-odd years ago that said ships have to be recycled at age 20. Um, so I think there's a, a real benefit to taking the asset base that we have, the installed asset base, and making the best we can with it. I mean, recycling is great, and new builds are great, and it's all necessary, but I personally think it's ridiculous to throw these things away when they're 20 years old, especially when that's driven by a lot of people who have never actually seen a ship before. And the rest of the transportation industry, you know, they have assets that last longer. Bridges last 100 years, buildings, I, I don't know how old this building is, but I'm not afraid of the roof falling in. So um, that's my perspective on age. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm glad you have an opinion. I can go on more if you yeah. like, but I think that, that kind of sums it up. And there's money in it. I mean, there's an there's a, there's a, a ESG angle with, you know, the scrapping, with the energy it takes to build the ship down, you know, with the consumption, with the improvements you can make on the ship. You manage the asset longer. You know, if you envision 25 years, it'll, it'll be 25 years. Eris, do you have an opinion? Uh, well, I kind of concur with what uh, Bob just... Uh, you can or cannot? I can can. Uh, okay. All right. Good. Thank you, Harris. Thanks. There's one. <laughs> Thank you, Harris. <laughs> no, I mean, think about it. Uh, about 35% of the fleet today is over 50 years of age. Uh, so if we were to, uh, uh, to be very strict about, you know, all this a uh, ESG uh, talk that it's been happening around us, and we just, you know, overnight press a button and make all these vessels disappear, what will happen to world trade? What will happen to, you know, to oil flows? What will happen to, you know, buildings like that and, you know, uh, all the oil usage that the world needs? Uh, so everything has to happen in, uh, uh, with, it, with a certain process and, uh, and uh, uh, not take, uh, you know, ad hoc decisions without really putting them to the test. Uh, obviously, ships serve a purpose. They are, we don't just build vessels for the fun of it. Uh, uh, they do carry oil that is important for the world economy. Uh, of course, we, we need to adhere uh, and we need to amend and uh, upgrade regulations uh, as they come along and as uh, 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 we move forward in life. Uh, 
but in the end of the day, we need to make sure that we transport you know, uh, oil from A to B uh, in, in, in uh, very safe vessels. Uh, when you have such a depleted supply at like 4% of the order book, which is the historical low, I think, that it has ever uh, fallen to, uh, in a Titan, in, in this Titan, uh, uh, Titan, uh, Titan in market, uh, in an environment of, of increasing oil demand, uh, in this new paradigm shift with, uh, uh, that uh, the events with Russia and the Ukraine have created, that I think we're going to see uh, for, for that they, they will last uh, for the very you know, long term. I mean, I, I joked back in December in this very panel that uh, nothing will change uh, un, un, unless you know, the, U, the um, uh, Russia elects a U.S. president. Uh, and actually, I mentioned the name of Donald Trump, but I think that might not be the case uh, uh, <laughs> going forward. But uh, unless you know, something substantially, fundamentally changes in, in uh, Russian politics, even if Putin goes tomorrow, uh, this paradigm shift is, is here to stay. So we're seeing, you know, an elongation of routes, new, new, new trading patterns uh, that will absorb capacity out of the market. The shadow fleet is here to stay, either we like it or not, as long as that situation remains with, uh, with Russia. Uh, uh, so all of us that operate in call it the, the Western trades, uh, we'll, we could be facing a situation where uh, vessel c supply uh, could be in decline, could be perhaps by next year, a certain segments could be in a negative growth. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so, uh, and, and considering all these environmental regulations that we need to adhere to, especially the older vessels, uh, at some point we would need to, and owners, uh, and we're seeing that, uh, need to rethink of their operational usage. Uh, scrapping has almost gone down to zero the last uh, few months. Uh, so perhaps inevitably, just by the by reality dictating, uh, mm -hmm. you know, conditions, uh, these older vessels will need to stay for a little bit longer to serve, you know, the, uh, 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 to serve the world. Uh, of course, you know, things will need to be, you know, addressed and, uh, you know, for the longer term, but uh, I agree with Bob, you know, vessels, the, uh, you just don't turn the, f the switch and they disappear. They're, they're Supposedly, they are built for like 25 years. Uh, historically, they have been scrapped, I think, closer to the somewhere in the you know, 20, 22 years uh, of age. Most, uh, more recently, in the crisis, I think they were down to 18. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the vessel that it's 18 uh, you know, plus uh, is not in, does not have you know, the necessary qualities uh, to transport safely, especially if you know what you're doing as an operator mm -hmm. uh, to transfer you know, the cargo from A to B uh, safely. In, in an efficient manner. Ted, f from a public company perspective, do you, what's your opinion on, on s number one, seeing the fleet age increase over time, and then, you know, from a, from a running vessels at a public company, w would you be comfortable, or what are the other ramifications you'd need to be thinking about from an increased fleet age on the tanker side? Well, we have 175 vessels, 47 are tankers, so we're always renewing the fleet. Um, think about it, if you don't renew the fleet, wait a year and your fleet's 5% less value. So you're continuing to have to renew the fleet. Um, and it's honestly on the tanker side, you look at the back end of the curve is really lifted uh, because of what's going on in the war. I mean, you got a 10-year-old V today is close to 80 million. Um, in 18, we were doing deals at 84 million for new building. For new building. Mm -hmm. So I think the, the, the asset prices are up. 
Um, but if, if, I mean, okay, so we're diversified. We made, uh, we made some good money in the container side. We pushed it into the tanker side. Um, you know, you, there's still good deals at the, top, at the top end of the market, but you have to have coverage going forward. And we were able to do that. So I think there's this ongoing balance between the balance sheet and renewing the fleet. But, you know, we ha I mean, if we're going to re renew 10% of our fleet, we're doing 17 vessels a year. Uh, that's 34 in, in and out. Um, so, I, you know, our fleet is about two and a half years younger than the average across the board. Uh, like four against the containers and two and a half on the tankers. But you have to keep, we want to keep that cutting edge in front of the uh, aging fleet. And I think the fleet is going to continue to age because as, as we've been saying here, um, what's the, I mean, the transitional fuel is LNG, we know that. But what's the next fuel? You know, it's the flavor of the month's methanol. Mm -hmm. um, but who knows? And maybe because you can store it at room temperature. Lois knows a lot more about this than I do. But, but I think um, until you get to that, even if the V's average 100,000, which they're averaging today for the next year, you'll have some ordering. But nowhere near where it would have been without the CII, EXI mm -hmm. uh, constraints on, um, because you don't want to order a ship, as we said, and five years later, you have to renew the engine. So, so, Lois, you obviously talked about this at lunch to a degree. So, what do you do? I mean, you know, the mm. rates are north of 100,000. I mean, th this is a fleet today that's generating significant and historic cash flows. What, what do you do with, uh, you know, fleet development plans as we're waiting for technology to catch up? So, first of all, you know, they're, they're making 100 grand a day for like a hot second. Sure, so, sure. You know, <laughs> let, 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 us, uh, let us make some money because we went through 2021, which in 30 years I've never seen rates, uh, exactly. rates worse, uh, you, you know, than they were yeah. for the VLCCs. And, I, you know, I guess I would, you know, we would love to build more dual fuel VLCCs with the LNG capability. Doesn't seem to us to really work on small size vessels, you know. Um, However, you know, is, is working very efficiently on the Vs, it is expensive. So, you know, today if in Korea you're going to order a V at 120, which is probably undercutting it, yep. and, and then tack on top of that the dual fuel LNG capability, it's going to be another 15 to 20. Um, you know, th these are really big numbers, and that's why, you know, we need partnerships to you know, try to defray some of that risk element with the new technology. So, you, you know, today we, you take the existing fleet and, you know, you do everything that you can from behavior, from equipment to reduce what you're burning today and what your footprint is. And then you're looking at tomorrow and, you know, there is some existing technology that, by the way, is not carbon free, but that is carbon reduced. And then, you know, you start looking at, you know, net, you know, net neutral and, and carbon free, and it's going to take a lot of, of time and innovation before we get all the way there. It, 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 just to summarize what everyone said, I think, the ship, also the ship is delivered two years from now or two and a half years from now. So you have a capital drag for two and a half years, delivering to an uncertain market that could be completely different than where we are now. And you have an historically high price on a ship with a propulsion system that you don't know if it's going to last for very long. So without, as Lois said, without a charter from an oil company who may actually need it or want to be virtue signaling or both, um, it's really hard for ship owners to go out and just, you know, take a flyer on something like that, never mind, you know, renewing 10% of a 170-ship fleet. So I think, um, you know, what I said before, there are a lot of ships out there that can be um, optimized and improved in their efficiency, and then, you know, the next fuel will come along in, in due course. 
No, I, I think Bob totally hit the nail on the head. I mean, it's one thing for owners every time, every so many years to be asked to upgrade the vessels, to reinvest and reinvest over their all investments in, in terms of upgrading the vessel. Uh, but on the other hand, that vessel needs, the investment in that vessel needs to make financial sense. Uh, we are all here, obviously, you know, for a reason, uh, being in this called capitalistic world, uh, where none of us here is doing it for charity, so it needs to make financial sense to invest, and we're fine in doing it as long as we get the necessary yeah. returns, minimum returns uh, on the investment. Uh, so as long as, you know, uh, the owners are one side of the equation, but on the other side uh, are the charters. Mm -hmm. So are they there to support you and provide you with the necessary rate over the long term to justify your investment? Uh, either on the new building or a retrofit, we don't know. So perhaps, I don't know if Nicholas but, but, they, but they never have because we always order new ships and then we hope the market goes up and then they can use the new ships and take advantage of our lower capital costs and drive our capital costs lower. So that's been there, mm -hmm. that, that has been what's happened to the traders and the oil companies over the past 20 years, right? And, and, and we just walk into it, this time we can't. I think you're seeing uh, some partnerships for a, f a few reasons, right? What, what drives the period market? The first thing that drives the period market is pain in the spot market. And you need to do two to three year deals. But now we're seeing uh, m major oil players and the major oil companies talk about doing longer term deals because they see the same numbers going forward that we do. Um, for the last 10 years, they could say, I'm going to put 5% of my portfolio on long-term deals, and I'm probably going to lose money on it, but I need it just in case something blows up. Mm -hmm. Now they've taken that 5%, and they've probably said, I need 20% of my portfolio covered on long-term basis. So you're seeing a lot of calls come in, and, and I go back to inflation. I think once you get above, you know, up to three years, it starts from the trader going to the manager, going, it works its way up. But five-year deals really start from management making a decision that we need coverage over the next five years because of the lack of order book and because of inflation and because of geopolitical issues. So it's a very different uh, footprint here than it has been uh, for the last few years. And I guess for a new building that could potentially last for 18 years, let's say on average, is a five year long enough in, in, in the context of things? So, so I guess that leads to the next natural question. I think each one of you touched on it to some degree. So, so what are the types of partnerships that you as ship owners would be willing to accept in order to step into this extraordinarily high price but still kind of are uncertain you, market for new assets? Are you a broker or a banker? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be a research, independent researcher guy for the time being. Well, I mean, uh, you know, owners are looking for you know, seven-year time charters, you know, as, you know, longevity, uh, you know, as, as much as, as you can find it. And, you know, I think it's just beginning, quite frankly, you know, uh, on the tanker side in particular to, to develop because to Ted's point, you know, the customers need to see that, hmm, you know, perhaps, you know, uh, I'm not going to be spoiled for choice unless we work together mm -hmm. to find some solutions. Yeah. and. Sorry, Lois. No, no, go for it. I, I, listen, I, I know this is a tanker panel, but the containers to completely uh, encapsulate this market, they didn't make a dime for 10 years. Longer. Then in two years, <laughs> they made a decade's worth of money. Mm -hmm. And that's shipping. And you have to control your risk and control your cost to be in position to make that money. Mm -hmm. And that's where we are now. So does the economy need to get worse for this to resolve itself? I guess that's what I'm trying to get at is what do you, what do you think if you put your crystal, you looked in your crystal ball, what, what, what resolves this? Bob, it looks like you want to answer. 
Yeah, I, I think historically, 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 like back in the 60s and 70s, oil companies had long-term charters on tankers all the time. And then a spot market developed on the fringes. And then the oil companies figured out that the spot market is a cheap place to get ships, as Ted said, for a long time. So they had other uses for their, for their equity and their capital. And the cost of capital on shipping, it wasn't return, there was no return on the cost of capital, so a big spot market developed. And now I think it's gone back the other way, where um, there will be a shortage of ships, and it has to be supported. I mean, most people you talk to don't want to go out and buy a ship for 140 million bucks. We do more time charter than, than spot, and we're getting a lot of profit sharing, you know, a, a, a collar and profit sharing. So think about what the charters are doing. They're giving us downside, downside protection and 50% of the upside. That's a very strong signal yeah. to us. Okay. And, and, and perhaps in a way, you, we are seeing what we're trying to, uh, I, get, uh, I guess, uh, uh, push across uh, the point that we're trying to, to make here is that, you know, chargers need to be uh, uh, kind of their perception to jive with, uh, with uh, the ship owners. And in a way, we're seeing that, or we're beginning to see that in LNG. Uh, I mean, today we're talking about, you know, very high-priced assets, uh, over $250 million, perhaps touching $260 million. And, and finally, uh, over the last uh, uh, year or so, or perhaps more recent than that, we are seeing charterers offering long-term contracts, uh, which we hadn't seen for many, many years in LNG. Historically, LNG had the longest of, of mm -hmm. uh, contracts. Then that declined, and on average, we were looking at anywhere between, you know, maximum five, seven, eight years max. Today, at the get-go, you can easily, easily, I mean, a 10-year contract is on the table. Uh, so the chargers, I guess, have realized that for an owner to make an investment of 260 by the time the vessel gets delivered, million, at least a good part of its life, needs to be covered uh, with you know, a decent, uh, good return uh, uh, contract. Just when has the market been this strong with balance sheets with no debt when owners haven't rushed out and bought? And if I'm, a, if I'm an oil company or a trader, I would expect the yards to be full of tanker orders, and it's 4%, right? So if, not, if these guys aren't going to order now, when are they going to order? And then the answer becomes, you know, we're not going to order. And it's not capital discipline, which I don't believe in. It's, you know, we're all victims of the tragedy of the commons, and we all look out the window and realize there's no more grass to feed the sheep. And um, we're not going to put any more sheep out there. And they have to step up and do something. And by the uh, way, I'm not advocating more orders. I'm saying that the moment you decide to order, it needs to make financial sense. Sure. Yeah. Same. Absolutely. I, any sense of what duration a charter? I mean, in the market today, for instance, if you were to go out with an open V and you wanted duration, what are we talking about? Well, I mean, I don't believe that we have seen uh, real liquidity, in particular on the VLCCs, for time charters of three years plus. Mm -hmm. We haven't seen that. Okay. So. I think it has to continue to build into itself before we will we will see that market develop and and have the type of liquidity that y you know would be more reliable for an owner. Okay. The, the twenty-year average is around forty-two for the V, so mm -hmm. I don't mm -hmm. see us owners taking anything less than in the forties. If you're going to do, I mean, in one year is about forty-five days, so. You want to see three to five stretch out to that before you start locking in. I mean, and then you're, you're going to consider what your asset-based cost is. Do you guys see offerings on? Do you see T, T offerings on new bills or just on your existing fleet? I, I was just, you know, uh, you see, do you see TC offers on new bills or just on your existing fleet? Yeah, I, I was talking specifically on existing. Yeah. Um, we we 
haven't you know seen um, uh, you know other than you know Shell the project that we were on right. you know some of these where you know oh, okay let's let's you know have you build a B against a long term time charter that has not been I mean I don't yeah. know who else has done that it's been right. Shell did it for ten Vs and that's been about it. Yeah. I think it's not us against them the charters we are all on the same side, so that's what it needs to be realized by everyone we're not you know we're not trying to cut each other's throat. Yeah. Uh, it's, well, this is how <laughs> things have developed. If you speak for yourself. <laughs> Did you say that? <laughs> you said it out loud. But in the end of the day, uh, it, we really need to be on the same side in order to make this work. Otherwise, it's going to be a you know, very bumpy ride going forward. Understood. We have standing room here. So if people do have questions, feel free to raise your hand. I, li I like these things to be more interactive than just me firing away. But if you do have questions, <laughs> feel free. I have plenty more to go, though. Um, so, Lois, at lunch you mm. talked about some of the work that you're doing incrementally to help fuel efficiency of the mm -hmm. vessels. Can you talk a little bit about that and, you know, obviously in this spot environment, the return on incremental investments is probably pretty good, but how do you think about that sort of right. more holistically across the fleet? Well, you know, it's it's interesting. It's it's a whole different conversation now than it was, you know, even just a couple of years ago, when um, you know Bill Nugent, our, our head of technical and sustainability, and sustainability uh, says, okay, you know, we want to put advanced hull coatings on. Um, it's a lot easier for us to get to yes, mm -hmm. okay, because does it pay back? Yes. Is it what you absolutely need to be doing so that you can meet your trajectory? Yes. So, you know, it's all of those, uh, you know, tried and true things, you know, the, the advanced hull coatings, you know, the Mavis ducks, you know, boss fins. But then, you know, I, I think, um, you know, when we were sitting in there today and, you know, really digging into, you know, that analysis of the fleet, there, there is more, you know, you know uh, machinery and optimization that can be done. There's more human behavior changes that can be done, of course, I think everybody today is is using whatever um, onboard automation you can and the weather routing and all of these things, right? But uh, I think there's a lot yet to be done. For example, you bring a ta tanker into port, and you know you're gonna, going to be going on that laden passage at whatever the charter ordered for speed, and then you're going to show up, and you may or may not go in right away. And when you do go into discharge you're going to be holding 100 PSI at the rail. That's in your contract. And you better be able to discharge within 24 hours. Now, that's regardless of what the shoreside capability to receive is. And, you know, so you really, you, you can see all these rich areas where when and as, you know, you could try to change little pieces in the system. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody talks about arriving just in time as to when they need you, and you know uh, how quickly do you, you know, you know how intense does that pressure at the rail need to be to for your discharge pumps to get that cargo off? You know, uh, there's there's just a, a lot of rich detail that could be attacked once we all start working together. And the CII is is already forcing all these conversations because you want to do a time charter. Owner's going to want a CII clause. Mm -hmm. Charter is going to be, you know, at the very top, you know, oil companies are very much aware and pushing decarbonization. On the chartering desk, 
then they're like, okay, uh, what do you mean we got to do a CII? And all of a sudden, you know, it, it causes and it is starting to force um, a different level of collaboration and people working together to manage how they're going to trade those ships. So I think we're just in the beginnings of this. I, I think also um, if you have a hundred, a few years ago when everybody's worried about, you know, the cash, Right, the, the office bills. Uh, you were sending three-day FedEx because there wasn't enough money to pay for one-day FedEx. It was kind of hard to rationalize a half million dollars per ship in the yard for better coatings. But when the market's at 100,000 bucks for Vs and 50,000 bucks for MRs, you can do things that have a payback of as short as two or three years. So it's really a, a different program for us. Got it. You, you know, I think oh. if, if you put, may I? Yeah, please, absolutely. Right. So if we do all these incremental changes, I think the if you want to look at the, the targets of IMO 2030, 2050, uh, our best guess uh, estimate in-house is you're only going to get 25% of the way there without a new fuel. You can do LNG, it's what, 15% less carbon, and then you can do carbon caps another 15%. You're not even halfway there yet. So you're going to need some giant leap in technology, but yet all of us need to do the best we can to make maybe that 25%, which we're looking to go, to make it 40%. And then maybe there's a combination of fuels that we use that get us to you know, zero carbon, but that's a long way off. So we only have two minutes left. So I, I, I ask you guys this every time I do this panel, and I don't think you guys like it anymore every time I do, but I, I'd love to get some perspectives on where you think rates are going to go. And so if I had to ask you to, you could pick the, you could pick the ship size uh, and, and think about sort of a year-end either spot or, you know, contract rate. If you want to do a one year, that's fine. Kind of get curious, what, what do you think the, the market's going to look like a, at the end of the year? I go last. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted you to go first. Uh, let Ted go first. I'm it's like the price is right. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think. <laughs> See where you, can, there, there, where you can get to. Right. There's, there's, I'll answer without a number. There's black swans, right? And then financially, there's also pink flamingos, right? We hear these days a new term, black swans, but you don't see pink flamingos things that are hiding in plain sight like a banking crisis in front of us. Um, I do think the rates will continue to be on the spot market well above the 20-year averages. You'll start seeing a lengthening of, of, of time charter. Um, I, it will be volatile. I mean, I think you, you have your, your summer lows. I mean, it's seasonal and it's, it's cyclical, um, but we're well above. I think we're going to be certainly on the crude well above 20 year averages, and that will hold unless there's a black swan. Got it. Mm. I'd say I, I think that will hold on both uh, the crude and the product. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if we get some economic headwinds and the market briefs, then, you know, buy quick. Got it. I'll let Bob go last, Harris. Uh, well, uh, I, I don't see anything uh, changing uh, for the worse uh, based on uh, uh, market fundamentals and uh, uh, oil tanker uh, fundamentals uh, going forward. Uh, if anything changes, it will only be for the better, unless, of course, with the full disclaimer, you know, uh, some global meltdown or uh, something that we cannot foresee uh, uh, at this very moment. Uh, but I do expect rates and asset prices uh, to remain at very elevated levels and perhaps just by using the benchmark one year VLCC rate, uh, uh, levels, uh, we could be seeing perhaps uh, uh, come, you know, at the end of the year, rates perhaps five, 10, 10 to 15% higher to where we are today. Uh, so probably in the touching 50 plus thousand dollars a day, 50, 55,000 dollars a day. That's Got it, Bob? Yeah, I would say um, I've never seen it so good, all the fundamentals and uh, supply demand are in our favor. And I think uh, the next two years, are going to be great just like they are now, but I, I will say that something will happen 
uh, you know, everything that happens is one in a thousand, but there are a lot of things that are one in a thousand. So it's more than one in a thousand. It's a hundred in a thousand or two, five hundred. So I would say in the next uh, year, something will change the dynamics. Could be, you know, strongly to the upside or downside, but it's clearly nothing that we can predict now. Yep. Yeah. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Thank you everyone. Thank you. Sure. Picture. Oh, okay.